1: It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Last week, I talked to Rand Paul about Yemen and heard from Atul Gawande on healthcare. We catch
0: up on Sarah's Week in D.C. and find the nuance in
1: Betsy DeVos's Title IX
0: announcement in today's episode. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right.
1: You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
0: Welcome to another episode, everyone. Today, we are going to talk about Betsy DeVos's announcement on Title IX, some of the social media controversies of the week, and continue to extend our thoughts to those impacted by the hurricanes that are just relentless right now in our country. Then we'll catch up with Sarah on her whirlwind week in Washington, D.C., spanning topics like Yemen and healthcare. And as always, we'll end with what's on our minds outside of politics.
1: And we are still so close, like $200 and change to meeting our goal on Patreon. So if you would like to become a patron of Pantsuit Politics, go to patreon.com forward slash Politics. There's all levels of support from $1 to 100 and you open up a treasure trove of additional content, including our monthly bonus episode at $15 a month, which is we've decided maybe just will involve alcohol every time. If you're imposed to that, let us know. But that seems to be the most popular option. And we'd also love to hear about from you guys about your nuanced relationships. If you are in a divided house, perhaps you are a Republican married to a Democrat or a Democrat dating a Republican, whatever the case may be, we would love to hear from you guys and how you find nuance within your own relationships. So you can just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. That's probably the easiest way. And we'll include some of your voices on an upcoming episode.
0: All right, so let's dive right into Title IX, and I thought we could do maybe a mini primer on Title IX as it relates to campus violence, because I think most of us are familiar with Title IX in the context of college athletics, but um, the, the campus assault issue is relatively new, so buckle up for just a few minutes on Title IX here. Um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did not include any prohibition on gender discrimination in public education and federally assisted programs. And at this time, the feminist movement was kind of galvanized again. And so a number of people went to work on this problem. There were major issues with sexual discrimination and hiring. With pressure from the National Organization for Women, President Johnson issued some executive orders in the late 1960s to try to deal with that sex discrimination issue in federal contractors, but universities continued to have huge disparities in hiring, pay, equity, and promotion. Three women, Bernice Sandler, Edith Green, and Patsy Mink, were instrumental in drafting the first iteration of Title IX, and they were really focused at the time on hiring and employment practices in federally financed institutions, especially universities. Senator Birch Bayh of Indiana introduced Title IX, and it was enacted as part of the Education Amendments of 1972, signed into law by one Richard Nixon, who directed the – how about that – the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to carry it out. The key provision was that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Birch by had to really stay on the Department of Health, Education and Welfare to get regulations put together because people realized that Title IX could seriously impact men's sports. And so it was contentious. It was hotly debated. It took three years to get any regulations on the book, but they were issued in June of 1975. In 1980, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare was split, and Title IX enforcement responsibility was given to the Civil Rights Division of the new Department of Education. So that's why Betsy DeVos is a central figure here. So on the sexual assault front, in 1992, Congress required universities to issue written policies on preventing sexual assault and the procedures that had to be followed once an allegation of sexual assault was made. That was unrelated to Title IX, but I think it's important in sort of understanding the history here. Then President Clinton's administration took more steps on this. So agencies, whenever they put out new regulations, typically have a a procedure called notice and comment. The public is notified that the agency is contemplating rulemaking or a potential rule, and there's this comment period for everyone to weigh in on it. President Clinton's administration went through that process, and through that process determined that the Department of Education has jurisdiction under Title IX, to investigate the manner in which universities responded to allegations of sexual assault. In 1999, the Supreme Court of the United States held that universities can be liable under Title IX for student-on-student sexual assault, which that's a, that's a pretty big deal. The universities have to be deliberately indifferent to sexual harassment, of which they have actual knowledge that is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it can be said to deprive the victims of access to educational opportunities or benefits provided by the school. So this is where the body of law starts to really change. Um, just as a side note, because Patsy Mink was so instrumental to Title IX, in October of 2002, President Bush signed a law renaming Title IX as the Patsy Takimoto Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act. Okay, and this takes us to the Obama era. The Obama administration got pretty aggressive about Title IX. Um, in 2011, the administration issued what has become known as the Dear Colleague Letter. And the Dear Colleague Letter was issued without a public notice and comment period, and it gave the federal government authority to dictate specific procedures colleges must use to adjudicate sexu- sexual assault allegations. It said that universities should use the lowest standard of proof, which is preponderance of the evidence for you law school scholars. Um It required universities to allow accusers to appeal not guilty findings. That is kind of a form of double jeopardy that we don't usually find in U.S. laws, that the accuser can appeal a not guilty finding. It provided for accelerated adjudication of these claims with a recommended limit of 60 days out, and it discouraged cross-examination of the accusers. So Betsy DeVos now has made a statement saying that she is opening a notice and comment period that could last for months or years to come up with rules to replace the Obama-era guidance on
1: sexual assault. So here's what I think. I think we should start with two basic premises. I think we should start with the premise that Obama and his administration did not want to see um, young men who were innocent punished for sexual assaults they did not commit. And I think we need to assume that Betsy DeVos and the her department do not want to see young men guilty of rape. Let off scot-free. So let's just start there, everybody. Let's just start with the basic premise that Obama's administration didn't want to see innocent people punished, and Trump's administration doesn't want to see guilty people go free. I think that we should start there.
0: I think you're so right, and that that is such a helpful foundation for any conversation. Just assume good intent on every side.
1: So I think that, look, you know, I understand obviously the obama administration's um concern about the environment on college campuses and the ways in which sexual assaults and the accusations of sexual assaults were treated um without the seriousness that they deserve However, I mean, look, I was all ready to just sort of roll my eyes at Betsy DeVos being Betsy DeVos, but then the Washington Post editorial board, don't liberal rag, Washington Post came out and said, she's right. We need to look at this again. Perhaps there's, you know, it, there's a very, very, very large group of people, um, on both sides of the aisle that think the Obama administration went too far. Now I think that my, My caveat with the Obama administration when you were reading those things is, you know, what we're talking about with the – it sounds bad when you say lowest standard of proof, double jeopardy, but this is not a court of law. This is the administration. This is a university's decision-making about whether somebody stays in school or not, not whether somebody else goes – somebody goes to jail or not.
0: I think that's why these issues are so difficult because I find myself thinking, one – that it is so difficult for women or for anyone who has been victimized in this way to come forward, that you want to give people a broad choice of forum, right? And so someone who is not going to be comfortable going to police or making a criminal charge needs a place to go. You want students to feel safe in schools. So to be able to say this happened to me and this person shouldn't be on our campus anymore makes sense. At the same time, you don't want universities becoming de facto court systems Mm -hmm. and effectively ruining someone's life without real due process enforced in a place that is meant to enforce that kind of right. And the thing that sticks out to me from Betsy DeVos's comments was this idea that if everything is harassment, then nothing is harassment. Mm -hmm. Because I think that a a hugely complicated piece of this whole discussion is that there is a range of behavior, some of which is criminal and some of which is violative of the principles that a university would want to establish for conduct in its space, but not criminal. And we're trying to sort out all of this And that's just, that's hard. And it's especially hard because in doing the very, very difficult work of trying to get complaints about harassment taken seriously in our society, we have enacted a whole host of laws and mores that completely end someone's life when they make a mistake in this area. Well, and I do not say make a mistake lightly, but it, it is, it, it can be life ending to send a text message that you shouldn't have sent. Right.
1: And well, it's and hard. Here's the, and here's the thing. I think that part of the problem with this conversation with regarding universities and sexual assault is that the other systems we have in place to deal with sexual assault are doing a shitty job. And so that's why we have to have these really difficult conversations on university campuses because, you know, the crim, because people don't feel comfortable trusting the criminal justice system either. Right. And I think that's a huge problem, but look, you know, with regards to, I mean, I think part of the the Betsy DeVos problem is like meeting with men's rights activists, which a huge population of the country is just going to roll their eyes at the mere mention of. But, you know, and I would have to, but I'll be honest, I watched that 30 for 30 documentary on those guys, the Duke lacrosse team who were absolutely innocent <laughs> and did not do it and got accused of all these terrible things. But what I really appreciated about that documentary, I think they re- did a really good job of that. One of the guys who was accused at the end and has become an attorney and like helps with the innocent project was basically like, You know, the message here is not that there's all these false accusations of sexual assault. That's not the problem. You know, the problem is in our criminal justice system that we don't, once you're accused of something, you're basically assumed guilty. And, you know, but that, to me, the problem, if that's our problem, um, if that's concerns of quote unquote men's rights activists is that the accusation is guilt, a guilty sentence then I think the first problem is that's just not the, a reality that other people are experiencing. So many sexual assault victims don't feel like the second they speak something, their, their accuser is just, you know, bam, guilty, locked in jail, and they feel safe ever again. They don't feel believed at all. And so, I, and I just don't think that these these, like I said, the university processes is not how we're going to get to the core of this problem that both Victims of sexual assault don't feel listened to or believed and accusers feel guilty the second that an accusation is um, put forth. And look, that's true of not just sexual assault. That's true in our criminal justice system overall. But, you know, that's a bigger problem than a university is capable of handling.
0: Well, it is. And I think to add to that, we need in all of our educational systems to start earlier talking about what harassment means. And maybe we need some, some language that helps us kind of put things into degrees without forgiving any of it, helping people think through what are we really talking about? Because I think a lot of the backlash to the idea of harassment and the kind of sentiments that you heard Betsy DeVos expressing come from what people view as a hypersensitivity that, that would seek to attach criminal sanctions to behavior that isn't criminal but is still wrong right and i don't know how you have that discussion without having that discussion in a way that gives people permission you don't want to lower the standard of conduct i think the other thing that i've been thinking about with this is had this message been delivered by someone else in a slightly different way I think we would be viewing it differently. It is a good thing to have a rulemaking process that is done with openness and transparency and opportunity for all the stakeholders to weigh in. It is a good thing to have certainty around how these things are being viewed and enforced. But then I don't want to say that in a way that gives short shrift to how closely connected The PR aspect of this administration is from substance, because in one way you could say, well, let's all realize that we've kind of made Betsy DeVos or she's made herself in some ways a caricature. So we're not taking her seriously. So we go to the most negative place with these comments. But this administration, one of its first acts for its Department of Education was to roll back the Obama administration's position that. Transgender students are protected with their gender identity by Title IX. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like you can just say, well, there's PR on one hand and substance on the other because they're they're married up pretty tightly here.
1: Well, and also you can't forget that we have a president who admitted to sexual assault on an open mic. So that's going to color any conversation about sexual assault is the fact that he was so blatant. And admitting to it in the Access Hollywood video. So, Well, that's right. And the tone of this entire discussion
0: matters a lot because, as you said, people don't have trust and confidence in our systems. And so Mm -hmm. every message on this topic sends a very real message to people who have been victimized, both men and women who've been victimized, about what kind of reception they're going to get when they seek out help. Yep, yep. So it's a tough one. When we were asked about this on Twitter, I said we needed a whole episode on it because it's complicated. I think it's really, really complicated. And I keep finding myself with the Trump administration in this position of agreeing with their purported reasoning for doing things. I do agree that the Obama administration did too much by executive order and exceeded its authority. But then the bizarre twist for me is that I almost always agree with the substance of what the Obama administration was trying to do and disbelieve that the Trump administration has a real respect for the rule of law. And I always mm-hmm. feel like there's something more nefarious going on.
1: Mm-hmm. OK, so let's move on to some of the social media controversies we feel obligated to address.
0: <laughs> well, can I just say how tired I am of reading people's reactions to the fact that Hillary Clinton wrote a book? She wrote a book. She was the first female candidate for president. It was the most bizarre election
1: we've ever witnessed. She wrote a book about it. What do you expect? Um, I can't. I'm just at the point now where I I don't want to hear your opinion about her. She can do whatever the hell she wants. And she doesn't owe anything to anyone. That's my most passionate position about this. Is Hillary Clinton doesn't owe you a sh- and so if she wants to write a book, if she wants to make expensive speeches, if she wants to blame everybody but herself, fine with me. She's earned it. And I thought that the in a less less emotional reaction and far more insightful Ezra Klein wrote an amazing editorial about this and was like, "Look, you know, we the question I think that we should be asking is not, you know, where did she screw up? Because the the point is like Donald Trump won, ran a worse campaign than her. Donald Trump was less prepared. Donald Trump had exposed less about his finances. His foundation was more problematic. Like, so why did he win when he was making bigger it's the same and bigger mistakes that she did. And that's the hard question we don't want to ask ourselves. We want to blame everything on her and say, you know, what are the bigger lessons here instead of asking ourselves the hard questions about why were people, why was, you know, 40% of the electorate still willing to vote for him when he admitted to sexual assault and didn't expose his tax returns and like all these things. And, you know, she's just, I also thought, um, Lauren, uh, who's the girl from Teen Vogue? Lauren Duca, yeah, she was so great, and I think Ezra Klein was making the same the same sort of point, too, which she said it's not that she didn't make mistakes. It's just the fact that people's visceral visceral reaction to those mistakes and the the way in which they are still talking about those mistakes is because she's a woman, <laughs> you know, like I uh, just I can't it's the conversation surrounding this book is really, really making me mad. I'm just gonna be honest.
0: So this book doesn't answer any questions that I'm interested in asking right now. My questions are not backward looking. They're forward looking. I'd like Mm -hmm. to hear a lot more analysis on why Congress isn't doing anything about doing anything about a president who I think has manifestly demonstrated his inability to exercise the duties of his office and is profiting Mm -hmm. while doing that. But you know what? It doesn't have to like. It's America. It's I a book. cannot, I don't have to go buy the book. I don't have yeah. to read it. Yes. If I change my mind on that someday, I can, I don't have to engage. This just falls squarely to me in the category of, if this is not your thing,
1: you Fine. don't have to discuss
0: it. We don't have to give it life and oxygen.
1: Yes. Know? And I just feel like with her in particular, just, you know, I feel like Hillary Clinton is like the, the manifestation of how every pregnant woman gets treated it's like she's community property and she's yeah, not that's true she is not community property she is a human being who made choices that you might not have made but she has given a lot of her life and lived a, and taken her hits in public service and in the public eye and I just wish people would acknowledge that and stop treating her like she um like we like she owes us something
0: like it just mm. well, she is. She does not exist to be your hero or your punching bag. Yes, and that's just where it is. You don't have to pick one of those extremes on her.
1: Ugh. Sorry.
0: So that noise that you just made is exactly how I feel as well. In response to people trying to decide why we have hurricanes related I mean, to politics,
1: be on a different Twitter because all I've seen is like, uh, the only comments I've seen from this on sort of the left is this idea of like, boy, they really wouldn't like it if we blame these on Jesus like they always blame our natural disasters. That's the only comment I've seen. Are people actually implying that this is because of politics or are people just dismissively being sarcastic?
0: Look, I have seen from, from all of our natural disasters over the past few years, like right now I am reading a lot of this is God's punishment for us having elected Donald Trump, just mm. like I read that Hurricane Sandy was God's punishment for other things. Look, I just can we just not do any of that? Let's can not I tell you
1: a very funny story? So when I was in political theory, like my senior political theory class, I will never forget our professor, Dr. Fryman was talking. He he had a letter to the editor in which this woman basically said, um, this, it was a tornado. This tornado is punishment because this state has the highest uh rate of abortion or something along those lines. <laughs> basically like, okay. So what's the problem with this reasoning? And we're all like, but you're like in a class. So you're trying to not, and just, and so you can't just be like, because it's stupid and not true. You have to have like, you know, a well thought out logical explanation for why that's ludicrous. And so we're all sitting there. And we're kind of like, because I mean, um, Obviously that, you know, the, the, the tornadoes aren't related to, and we're like kind of struggling to put into words logically, like why this is stupid. And one of my friends who was like the most progressive, the like sort of most hippie, like very left-leaning, he was like, oh, I don't know, maybe she's right. And we are all like, what? I'm sorry. It was funnier in the moment, but it was just kind of like, it's just, it's so ludicrous. It's sort of hard to put into words why. And so he just was like, I don't know, maybe she's right. Maybe that is why we get tornadoes because they're directly linked to abortion rates. You know, I don't even know what to say to people. I mean, it's just so absurd.
0: What do you think about the conversation around climate change related to the two hurricanes?
1: Um, I think that it is important to have, it's a very difficult conversation to have because you don't want to like, look at these people who have lost their homes and say, told you climate change was real because that's a real dick move. But I mean, they're bigger because the water's warmer and that's like fuel to a hurricane. I'm not a climate scientist, but I understand the basic science of hurricanes and the warmer the temperature in the water gets, the bigger they're going to get. And so, you know, I don't think, look, and I don't think that this is news to anybody who lives in Florida. Like, I don't think you see, um, huge climate denial, um, organizations coming from Florida. I just, I think they get it. They're not, you know, they get it. They live there. And I think that you, you, it's, you don't want to be the gross person who's, like I said, exploiting a natural disaster to make a political point, but at the same time, we have to face this reality. We just have to.
0: I agree with that. I've been watching some of that conversation and I, Really appreciated this tweet from Tom Nichols where he said, it's so hard to talk about the climate because suddenly you see religion from all sides. Mm. Like it is an, it is a vehicle for such intense feeling. And the truth is we need to sit down and have a conversation that goes like this. We're going to have more of this. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. And I just don't think we need to bring all of our baggage to that discussion because this is very present right now and dangerous. And I and like I said at the beginning of the show, relentless. Yeah. Like we need a we need to have a strategy here. Right. Okay, so the social media also went a little crazy about President Trump spending time with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. I have one thing to say about this and I'm interested in your perspective. I think the government needs to be funded. The debt ceiling needs to be raised and hurricane relief needs to be provided. I think three months is pathetic. I'm glad people are working together. And can we not discuss whether Trump is pivoting? This is just a thing that happened. It's one thing that happened. Tomorrow, something else will happen. And I don't think we need to make more of it than it is.
1: I was ready to just sort of brush it off as a one-off an incredibly entertaining and satisfying one-off for me personally, but a one-off until I was listening to, um, the daily and they talked well. And I read a couple, a lot of coverage about this where they, they were basically like, he really loved the reaction he got. He really loved the press he got. And as we all know, that is an incredibly motivating factor for our president. And so there is a part of me that's like, dude. Like, if you want to be liked and you want to see this, you don't want the it to keep going like it's going, let's do this more often. Now, do I think that will happen? I mean, I don't know, but it would be nice. It would be nice if he said, okay, it's time to just, we're going to get things done and we're going to make deals however we can. And if I have to side with them, sometimes I'm going to side with them. But the problem is, you know, like the numbers still aren't there for him. So on that side, either, I think that he um, I think the the probably the truest thing I read about the whole thing is that, you know, Schumer and him are New Yorkers. He knows how to relate to him. He likes him. He's liked him for a long time. And um, I'll tell you what, keep doing what you're doing, Chuck Schumer, on all the levels, but particularly this one. I, I thought it was the three months was it's not long enough, but it sure is a great deal for Democrats.
0: The last thing that I thought we should talk about within the social media realm is that Colin Kaepernick is back in everyone's discussion because football season has started and there's all this, like, he's bad for the business or he's great for the business or what he did was important, but it cost him opportunities. Oh, my goodness, everybody.
1: Okay. First I of think- all, what's bad for football is that it's terrible for the people playing it and it's yes barbaric. It's a barbaric sport. So that's the first problem for football and not call it cat. He's not hurting anybody's business. What's hurting your business is all this coverage on concussions, but nice try.
0: Well, and also you have people who have been abusive to spouses Yep, involved in all kinds of actual felony behavior. And this person who peacefully protested is bad for your business. Like, that's disgusting. Yeah, seriously. Keep walking.
1: And I think but that I thought I also think Colin Kaepernick's going to be fine. You know what I mean? Like, I do. I believe wholeheartedly that this has cost him. Um, but he seems like a thoughtful, considerate guy who made that choice knowingly. And sometimes there's more important things than um, maximum success you can reach in your career. And values are one of those things.
0: I think that's right. And this made me think a little bit about an article that you sent me, Sarah, and I think you posted on our social media pages about um people waiting for the perfect way to protest oh, I that, that I was thought was so good. I mean, the thrust of the article is basically that it is a serious problem. And look, this hits really, really close to home for me. It is a serious problem when people say I agree with your message but not the way you're expressing it. And we've kind of in retrospect, washed down the intensity of protests during the civil rights era. We've said that they were totally nonviolent when that's just not true. Mm -hmm. And no change has ever happened without a lot of really intense, difficult things that sometimes do turn violent. And it was just a great article. And I think Colin Kaepernick is such a perfect example of how many people will look at someone and say, like you know, why are you doing it this way? And when you start prying into that, like what, what is a way that you would be comfortable with? There's not a comfortable way
1: through this. Yep. I agree. I agree.
0: Who is your compliment for the other side this week, Sarah?
1: I would like to compliment the Republican congressman from the state of Kentucky. We met with um, particularly our ours um, while my Paducah Chamber trip was in Washington, D.C., um, Jamie Comer, our representative, was really great and came to us with several meetings and took everybody on a tour of the Capitol. We met with um, your representative, Congressman Massey, as well as Congressman Andy Barr um, and Brett Guthrie. And they were all really thoughtful guys. Did I agree with everything that they said? No, I did not. Um, but they were, um, considerate and they came and met with us and listened to us and updated us. And, um, I just was really, um, grateful for their presence and for the things they said.
0: I wanted to compliment Dick Durbin, who has been working on the DREAM Act and immigration issues generally for a very, very long time. He's been interviewed a lot related to the administration's announcement on DACA, and I think that he, for me, symbolizes the patient, persistent work that is emblematic of a lot of people who've spent long tenures in the Senate. When I think about arguments on term limits, I think about people like Dick Durbin and go, eh there's a lot of value in having been through this a few times Mm -hmm. and having continued the work and having learned some things in the process. So I just appreciate his enduring approach to this
1: issue. So up next in the suit, we are going to discuss my recent trip to Washington, D.C. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups, and there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, dot com slash pansy. Welcome back from Washington, Sarah. Thank you. Last week, I went to Washington D.C. with a trip of with a group of, and I don't want to brag, but Paducah took like forty four people to Washington D.C. to lobby for our town. We went to a lot of meetings where people were like, oh my gosh, we don't have enough chairs for you. I mean, I was so proud of our town and particularly my co-commissioner, Sandra Wilson, who planned the trip with our chamber of commerce. It was just, we rocked it. I don't want to brag, but here's what the things I wanted. I could, there were so many things that happened that I have to tell you guys about. So the first thing is we went to the national, um, African-American museum on the mall. I like stopped everything and said people were going to this because I wanted to go last summer when I was there for Box Conversations and didn't get a chance. Um, Did you get a chance to go when you went to Washington, D.C.?
0: No, I didn't. I walked past it. The architecture is really interesting, but I didn't uh, get to go in.
1: It's amazing. And here... So we went through... You go down three floors. You like go down to the bottom and then kind of rise your way up to the top, which... Beautiful imagery there. And you start down at the very bottom. And the first thing I saw was that you kind of walk through and they talk about what slavery was like in Africa at the time. And they say like it was temporary. It was not based on race, like all these different things. And then you, you kind of move through and there's this little middle passage part where they talk about the ships. And I guess I had just not internalized or thought about this because you see those old fashioned drawings with like the enslaved bodies just lined up in rows and how they stacked them in these ships. And that there were children on those ships and they had like little child shackles in this little side section. And I told my husband, I started crying at the child shackles and I did not stop crying until we got to Oprah's dress on the third floor. I mean, it was so powerful and there's just so many, it's, it's so much bigger than you can really imagine. And they do such a good job of like showing you how slavery grew so rapidly during the colonial period. And then what happened after they ended the transatlantic slave period, um, a couple of court decisions in which they really started to put into the law, the race aspect of slavery. And, um, you go through, they do a really good job of putting together reconstruction. There's this really powerful part that really struck me. You walk out into this sort of open section and there's a statue of Thomas Jefferson. And then it says the paradox of, um, Liberty, I think, and I can't remember. I just remember the word paradox really big. And there's stones behind him with the name of the enslaved people that were at Monticello. And I just thought when I saw that, you know, Paducah is sort of embroiled in this Confederate debate right now, and people are very big on um, sort of the same ridiculous argument our president made. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to start taking down monuments to Thomas Jefferson. And uh, because he owned slaves. The first problem is we're not talking about these people because they own slaves. We're talking about these people because they ripped the union apart in order to keep slavery. But whatever that aside, you know what? We really are changing our monuments to Thomas Jefferson and to our founding fathers. And we are including this as a part of the narrative. And that is a good thing, not only at the African American Museum, but you know, Monticello is doing a major renovation in which they are unearthing Sally Hemings, his, um, the enslaved woman who bore his children. And her room and putting that as a part of the tour. So, yeah, you know, we're not going to rip everything down, but we are changing the narrative about these people as well. And that is so important and vital to our history and how we think about these things.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's um, an a- It's an instructive thing to kind of immerse yourself in Mm -hmm. the history of this issue. I love going to the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati for that very reason. There's just no way to, I think, maintain any kind of separation from how sort of recent and present all of these issues
1: still are for us than experiencing something like that. So it was really really powerful and you in the part about reconstruction and Jim Crow and there were just so many of those sort of very violent episodes beyond the really famous ones we know um like Emmett Till's murder and all these things that it just they just shock you and they probably shouldn't but they do and um it was just it was very powerful and I highly recommend everyone take a trip so we did that the first day we didn't have much um downtown the rest of the time because we had like all these crazy meetings so we met with all the Congress people we met with the National Endowment of Arts, which has been a really amazing force in Paducah we've gotten several art town grants to expand our artist community, which is really a fuel for our economy it's not just about Elmo and people who paint like it literally it helps our town's economy in big, big impactful ways. So we met with them. And the- can I can I stop you for a second, though, and Please. say
0: that, like, I am for Elmo and I don't ever want to be dismissive of Sesame Street and the impact that Sesame Street has in the world, which I think is enormous. And it's I so think true. completely underappreciated and mocked in ways that just make me crazy when you start to learn about how few words children in impoverished households hear compared to children in higher income level households, mm-hmm. you realize that Elmo is doing the work to try to improve our society. So It's true. Sorry, I just had to interject a little plot. No, for that's Elmo. true. I
1: don't want to be dismissive of Elmo. Everybody I mean, look, Sesame Street is powerful and it's based on real child development science and it's Amazing, and it's been around for so long. It's an institution that deserves our funding. But it, you know that debate becomes only about Elmo when the NEA passes out hundreds of thousands of dollars in grants to towns just like mine. They just gave a huge grant to our Market House Theater to expand their education and to go into. Not only are they redoing historic buildings in our town, but they're expanding educational opportunities. They're doing similar work to what Elmo does, right? They're helping kids and they're using arts to empower a total new generation. It's just amazing. So the NEA was great. We met with the FAA because we have a local airport that is funded, um, through, in part through federal dollars. We talked to them about that. So our, our little town had two cabinet level meetings. We met with Elaine Chow, who was amazing and super professional and, um, really impressive. And we met with, um, Rick Perry, who was very sort of, um, Supportive of our town because my town has a former um, uranium enrichment plant that needs to be cleaned up. So we have a 10 year contract with the federal government for them to clean up the site. So we talked about that, learned a lot about nuclear energy. Um, The really interesting couple conversations that I couldn't wait to share with you guys as far as who we met with um, John Yarmouth, who is the representative in Kentucky from Louisville and the only Democrat in the caucus, Kentucky's caucus, um, was met with us and was really interesting. He was just talking about how like we like each other. Um, I get a lot when Rand Paul, when the shooting happened, I called him and I said, Hey, people need to know that you and I like each other. Like, that's important. He's like, they don't, people think that we hate each other and we fight all the time and we don't. And he was talking about that day, um, Thomas Massey, your representative had voted against the funding for Hurricane Harvey because of his, um, passionate beliefs about the p- federal budget that I disagree with. That's okay. And he said, you know, I like Thomas and I didn't want to attack him. So I just said, I'm glad he did. His side didn't win. And they put in the Courier Journal wrote, like Yarmouth puts out a statement attacking Massey. And he's like, I didn't do that. I didn't put out a statement. I just responded to their question. And then Thomas Massey like comes into the room and he's like, I was just telling them, Thomas that I did not put out a statement attacking you. And it was just like, a really great moment to see this sort of bipartisan, like, this is not what it's about. But he said, you know, the other day a person came up to me and said, hey, we, we pay you. We, we send you guys there to do work, not to fight. And he goes, you know, with, with due respect, you don't. You don't send us there to work. You send us there to protect your hardline ideology. That's what you all want. Mm. And that's what you're getting. And I thought, you know, John Yarmuth is a very smart guy and a very thoughtful guy. And I thought he's right. He's right. If we want to elect people to get things done, that we can't vote for people who only agree with us 100% on and, you know, check every single box, which is what we talk a lot about on the show. And leads me to my next point, which is we saw um, Rand Paul. Well, wait, before I move on, what did you think? What do you think about him saying that? I think John Yarmouth absolutely walks the walk on that. Everything Mm -hmm. I know about him,
0: I have tremendous respect for him. Um, I think that we, I was thinking, it's funny that you brought this up because I was thinking this morning about we're recording this on September 11th. This will come out on September 12th. I always think about that time period and how for these brief moments, we really came together as Americans. And then I'm thinking about the hurricanes and I was trying to come up with like, what's a thing besides donating money, which we've done and think is very important and will continue to do. What is the thing to be done right now to try to recapture that kind of American spirit? And the main thing I could think of is like, can we just stop taking the bait? Mm -hmm. Can we start looking at that headline that says he put out a statement attacking Thomas Massey and thinking, no, I'm going to read what he said and decide for myself if that happened or not? Yeah. The AP had a headline that we had some discussion about on Twitter this weekend about shelters in Miami detaining homeless people against their will from going back out into the hurricane. And someone asked what I thought about that. I think it was a D.D. And I said, listen, I think I come down on the side of asking people to stay in place because we don't want to put our first responders at more risk than we have to trying to save people's lives when we know something like this is happening. And Bryn chimed in and said, yeah, I think this is an unnecessarily inflammatory headline. And I thought, man, that's an evergreen, evergreen statement. Isn't that like, true?" all of these headlines are just unnecessarily out there ginning up conflict and we have to stop being consumers of that conflict.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so good. We have to stop being consumers of that conflict. I love that. I'm, that's going to be our excerpt for this episode. That's so good. Um. So that was really good and and leads me to my next point, which is we heard from Rand Paul. I've said on the show before I voted for Rand Paul. Do I agree with everything Rand Paul says? Nope. Did he support the Merrick-Garlic situation that infuriates me to this day? Yes, he did. But Rand Paul is principled in ways that I Agree with and respect, particularly when it comes to foreign policy. So I got we got a chance to ask him questions, I, and I told Beth this later. He's going to start catching on that there's always this like redheaded girl asking him foreign policy questions at Paducah events. I don't know how long, but <laughs> <laughs> he's got to figure it out because I asked him when he came to Paducah the other day. I think about Syria. So I said, you know, the New York Times piece about Yemen had recently come out, and we talked about it on our social media channels. And I said, you know, I want to say thank you for your stand on this, because he has consistently said we should not be giving Saudi Arabia these weapons to use against the people in Yemen." And he basically said, I said, you know it's, it's fiscally irresponsible and it's morally reprehensible. And uh, I just wondered if there's if you had any further thoughts or updates on the situation. And he said he's trying to put a vote to revoke the um, war powers that were given after 9 /11, which was, again, we're recording this on 9 11 16 years ago. Why we're still fighting wars under that same authorization is insane. And he's like, you know, that is a good first step. And he's like, look, you know, the, in Yemen, he's like, people are going to say it's Saudi Arabia. Well, we're funding Saudi Arabia and we're giving Saudi Arabia the weapons, some of them. And he's like, and people are going to say we're killing bad guys. He's like, but I have to wonder when we're taking out funeral processions, when we're killing women and children, um, are we creating more terrorists than we're killing? And I think that is so true. And I think it is a hard, complicated thing to think through. Do we have to let, not let bad guys go, but like there are some bad guys that we have to weigh carefully. What are we risking to take them out? You know, like, what are we putting at risk? What are we creating? And I just really so appreciate his leadership on this and his thoughtfulness on um, these issues. And yeah, I was a, every time I have an interaction with him like that, I leave more confirmed in that my vote for him was the right choice.
0: I have a Rand Paul sign in my garage and I do not agree with him on every issue. I find him enormously frustrating on some issues, Yep. but I, this goes back to our discussion about whether we hire or buy our legislators. And Rand Paul is someone that I want to hire because Mm -hmm. he brings a different voice. He brings a real commitment to issues that do not make headlines that other people don't give enough voice to and I think that he is just a critical voice in the United States Senate and continue to be happy that I voted for him even where I vehemently disagree with him on other topics
1: well I call his office like a lot like me and my secretary are like such good friends and I <laughs> during the health care debate I was like look I know he's voting against this not for reasons I wanted to vote against this but I don't care like I mean I think that's part of that that what we can do is realize, like, sometimes people are going to make votes we agree with for reasons we don't. And that's okay in a democracy. Not only okay, but maybe essential to get things done. Um, I think smart politicians understand that, Uh, you know, if as long as we align on the purpose and the, you know, then we can disagree on the reasoning. But, you know, if we have this idea of, like, you know, we can't ever think that anyone— and our government can contribute something worthwhile if they came down on the wrong side of Merrick Garland, then we're not going to get anywhere. We're just not. Well, I think
0: that we have to start looking at our politicians, maybe more like baseball players. (laughs) Like we don't expect anybody to bat a thousand except our politicians. Yeah. And they're people with a complex experience, with complex constituencies, supporting them with a huge diversity of folks in
1: any district to represent. And I just think we're asking too much. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. And that's what I sort of left with. You know, I was so proud of my town and I was very, you know, you get up there and you just remember. And I never forgot this because I worked up there, but like they, it's like John Yarmouth says, they get along. They're thoughtful, smart, considerate people trying to do the best they can. Do we agree on everything? No, but it's a democracy. And if you're waiting for a country where everybody aligns with you 100% politically, then you are going to be waiting a very long time. So, you know, I was very encouraged by my trip. It was a wonderful – the meetings we had, and I felt so proud of my town, and I think that we got a lot of um, important things accomplished and advocated for and made our voices heard, which is always a great experience in a democracy to go up there and make your voice heard, so – yeah. And you got to ask Atul Gawande a question. So, okay. My husband was like, don't hug his neck when you meet him. And I did not make <laughs> any promises because I just, we all know how much I love this man. I really love this man. So, okay. I got the ticket a while ago. And the funny part was, so I get up there, I'm late because I'd been on the Capitol Hill. I wait in line with these nice ladies who share their umbrella with me. And I get in and because I'm by myself, I like, it's all full. Everybody's going up to the balcony and I like walk and I'm like, are there any seats? And I'm, she's like, yeah, if you could ask somebody to scoot over. Cause it's, it's like an old synagogue and there's pews. And then I walk and there's like no space. And then somebody says, oh, wait, there's one right up there. Second row. I was in the second row. I was literally next to the microphone, went for when they asked questions. So that was the first amazing part. He was beautiful and perfect and wonderful as always. So thoughtful, saying amazing things. The most amazing thing, because, you know, I've read Being Mortal, and if you haven't, you should. Um, And the things he shared about the book were spot on and were really interesting, but I'd heard a lot of it before. And so but then she said that he recently had written an article in a journal for surgeons um, really directed at that audience about the opioid crisis, which is something he has not written about previously. So I thought it was very interesting. And he said the first thing he said was, you know my profession is responsible for the biggest health uh, health crisis that is bigger than HIV AIDS. And I was like, oh, my God. And so he starts talking and he says like a, a big push of this article was electronic prescribing. Um, he said that if you give somebody a seven day after a major like cancer surgery, sort of the stuff he does, it's very painful to recover from. If you give them a seven day supply of opioids, a year later, 80% of them are still taking the opioids. 80 so electronic prescribing is the people, sometimes people drive a long way for these surgeries. This, you know, helps them not have to go back, but they, they don't have drugs they don't need, all these things. So he's talking about that. And so Sarah Cliff, who's interviewing him from Box, um, says, so let me say, so let me confirm, you're saying that you feel like there's a lot of responsibility here in the medical profession, he says, and I quote, well, yes, we cost it. And I, y'all, I almost started crying. I tried to applaud, but nobody followed me along. But it was so, and if you've listened to the episode of the weeds, like it was so impactful for someone to just take responsibility for it.
0: Yeah. And that doesn't mean doctors intended this or Mm -hmm. bad people, right? Mm -hmm. It's just looking back, we understand things differently and that's okay. But we have to acknowledge that to be able to move forward.
1: And that's what he said. And, you know, he said this point, he's like, you know, It seemed inhumane to let people suffer. So at the time, for me personally, as a doctor, I just felt like it was so important to take people's pain seriously. And we know that we have problems with that. Women's pain isn't taken seriously. Um, minorities' pain isn't taken seriously and not treated in the same way. So we, it's not that we don't know we have a problem with that. Um, but, you know, we have to acknowledge that there were issues created. And I just thought it was so great. And I so, then they got to the question portion of the show and I was right next to the microphone, which is good because they, some people didn't get time to ask their questions. So I slid right up and I could just kick myself because so many people have said, I heard you on the weeds. And I should have said, instead of saying I live in Kentucky, I should have said, this is, I was just used to advocating for Paducah. I should have said, this is Sarah Holland and I co-host Pansy Politics. So we probably would have, you know, a lot of picked up a lot of listeners, but my husband said that would have been in poor taste. But anyway, so I asked him, um, sort of about the conversation we've had before about healthcare, which is you can't know what kind of healthcare you want if you don't know what kind of life you want. And where, where other areas this could like, this sort of attitude could be impactful. And what I realized is I thought when I said that on the show, as he spoke about sort of how we treat people and um, we talked a little bit about ch- labor and delivery, what I realized is, you know, in some instances, I think when I said that on that episode, I thought you have to get there first. You have to find, you have to walk into sort of healthcare scenarios, knowing what kind of life you want. And I think what I realized what he was saying is like sometimes people can find purpose through good treatment. You know, if treatment is given in the right way, you can help people, you know, some people are so blinded by pain or chronic illness or or whatever, it's hard to, you have to, you you have to help them get out of the wilderness of that health crisis in order to clear space for them to really think about that. And I think that's important because I'm a sort of a linear person. And I, ever since I said that on the show, I was really thinking about it. Like you have to find, you have to know what kind of life you want to live before you can really make good healthcare decisions. But sometimes you need help getting out of the healthcare woods in order to be able to answer those bigger questions, which I think is um, so important.
0: I think that's true. And I guess the, since I'm on a kick about the public's responsibility today, the thing I would say in response to physicians being, taking responsibility for relieving pain and the need to take all pain seriously is as consumers, we also have to be open to the fact that some pain is not best solved with a pill.
1: Oh, and yes.
0: And doctors I've had really open discussions with my doctor about the fact that when he tells people anything other than I have a drug for that, they are offended Mm -hmm. and they are angry
1: and they will go to someone who tells them I have a pill for that. Yep. Well, and that's what he, part of the, he had sort of a four part recommendation for the opioid issue. And one of them was we need to convey to patients that zero pain is not the goal and it's not a realistic goal. And I thought, you know what, that's a bigger conversation. That's a conversation we need to have as a society, because do we really, do we think that the message our society conveys is that pain is a part of life? Because I don't think we do. No, and then we don't. We tell people, you know, every ad you see is if you buy this or if you do this, or if you look like this, then your life will be happy and never have pain. And that is ludicrous. And so until we start having real conversations about pain and suffering and struggle as a part of life, and it's a it's a not only just something to survive, but to something to grow through, then I don't know, you know, I think that's an undercurrent in this crisis, too. I love Brooke Castillo on this. She talks
0: all the time about how the best case scenario is that 50% of life is going to suck. It just is. Yep. Yep. And And the sooner you get right with that, the happier you can be. And also happiness is not a permanent state, right? Mm -hmm. We are meant to have the plethora of human experience.
1: Well, and that, you know, one of my new favorite quotes is life is not happening to you. It is happening for you. Mm-hmm. And so when suffering or when pain or when a healthcare crisis arises, instead of, and I'm guilty of this, and, uh, instead of thinking this is happening to me, it's like, you know, I tell this story a lot when, um, I, when Nicholas and I, I lost a pregnancy at 20 weeks and my husband looked at me at one point and said, this is not happening to you. It's just happening. And that's just, it's hard. I mean, it's hard, but it is so important. And if you can get in that space, it just, it seems like it's going to make you feel more powerless, but it doesn't. It makes you feel um, less sort of tossed by the, the storm of fate and destiny.
0: (laughs) Well, look, I think we live in America as though every single thing is meant as a personal affront Mm -hmm. or a personal compliment. And that's why we respond to conflict that we don't need to respond to. I mean, that's why people are exercised about Hillary Clinton's book. She didn't write it for you or for me. Right. And that's why we question, you know, where the hurricanes come from. They didn't, they're, they're happening. Right. And if they came from something, it has to do with Centuries of our treatment of the planet and nobody's blaming you personally for that, Mm -hmm. right? We're saying we need to move forward. And I think that that is like alongside of pain is a part of life that we must accept. We, we also need to elevate the principle of like things just aren't about us. You know, we are, we are atoms in the context of a massive universe and that's okay. Like that's liberating.
1: Well, and that's, you know, that is, I think, I think the other thing that happens a lot, because again, we're already on a tool go one day. So why don't we go full into Richard Rohr? The email today was so good. And it's one of my favorite parts. It said, the dualistic mind presumes that if you criticize something, you don't love it. Wise people Mm -hmm. like the prophets would say the opposite. And that's so true. You know, just because we're saying, just because you're, you're, critical of something or just because you say, you know, doctors had a role in this opioid crisis, like you said, doesn't mean that you hate doctors. It doesn't mean you don't think doctors try to do a lot of good. Like it's just this, we got to start, stop consuming the conflict. That's my new favorite phrase. Stopping consumers of the conflict.
0: Honesty is an expression of love. Mm -hmm. I have a friend, Tracy, actually, our executive producer, Tracy, is someone who's really taught me that one of the most loving things you can do with someone is tell them the truth. And sometimes that truth involves criticism because the person who loves you wants you to be better or wants life to be better for you or wants you to experience things in a gentler way than you're allowing yourself to experience them. You know, that's the sort of tough love, get over it. That is because someone's saying to you, stop suffering needlessly, right? Right. And so I think that I think that's right. And the more we can kind of zoom out and and look at all of this. So that gets back to our batting a thousand discussion with our politicians, like giving them some grace and saying, I will vote for someone who doesn't bat a thousand for me does not mean that we can't at the same time be critical of those areas mm-hmm. where we have criticism. Mm
1: hmm hmm. So lots of lessons learned from my trip to Washington, D.C. Um, I knew when it was happening that there was going to be a ton of stuff I had to come back and talk to you guys about. So thanks for sharing, sharing the time and the episode so I could get it all off my chest.
0: I'm glad that you're back. I missed you. But I did love getting to talk to Angie about pensions and Zahava about school funding and sometime in an, another context, because we're going a little long here sorry, everyone, we'll have to talk about the conversation I had with Zahava because I'm super interested in
1: continuing this discussion about how we fund our schools. Definitely. So next up in the heels, we'll talk about what's on our mind outside politics.
0: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that.
1: What's on your mind this week, Beth?
0: You know, I mentioned last week that I am making a bunch of life changes and trying to enter kind of a new season. And I think whenever you mix things up, you go into a phase of observation. One of the things that I have noticed so clearly that I've been dying to talk about with you is that my children are tired and my children... Just want to be at home in their pajamas playing with their toys. Mm-hmm. And it's become so clear to me as I've made, made these changes that like my favorite day now is Saturday because I am not trying to come up with something fun for them to do. Like they just want to be here yep. at home with their stuff doing what they want to do. And it just, it's, it's been like the most, I'm not articulating it well. It's been so instructive to me about how one, we're all just too damn busy and we need to stop. Yeah. And two, I need to resist every message. And there are many of these messages about programming their lives. Yep.
1: Yeah, I don't. Look, so I have a third grader who does not participate in any after school activities besides Cub Scouts, which is once every two weeks. Um, The first grader just signed up for Cub Scouts. He doesn't do anything else. We do not play sports in my family. Um, Amos played like t-ball for a hot minute. And every time we had to go to practice, it was battle royale because he didn't want to go. And I'm just... I'm not going to do it. I mean, Griffin is old enough now that there's a couple extracurricular things that he can do in in elementary school. And we kind of went through the list and he was like, nope. And I'm just not going to beg him. I'm not going to beg him to do that stuff. Um, My experience with those extracurricular activities. And I still vividly remember as a child not wanting to go to stuff like having dance practice and being so mad because all I wanted to do was watch Mama's Family. And so I just, yeah, I don't, my kids do very, very little and I'm sure I'm sacrificing their chance to be on a soccer team or to, I don't know, I don't really think I'm sacrificing what but there is, I mean, I hear it and every once in a while I'm like, oh my God, should I be like pushing them to do stuff? And I'm like, no, because they really just want to play with their Legos. That's what they want to do. They want to be outside. They want to play with their Legos. And, you know, I'm i an adult and I like to do stuff with them. And, like, so when we have stuff that, like, we want to go ride bikes, does it take a little bit of cajoling? But I just don't feel guilty about, like, you know, making them do stuff as a, like, sort of family activities. And, you know, we have enough stuff. The adults in this family have enough stuff to do that we don't really have a lot of room for the kids to So I just don't feel feel bad. I think that we have
0: taken I I want Jane to be active and learn hobbies and find all these parts of herself that are there in in all that stuff. But the problem is, I think we as adults have made those activities work Mm
1: -hmm. instead of
0: making them activities and because we've turned them into work instead of allowing them to be play, of course our kids are tired and they don't want yeah. to do that stuff. Well, and it's
1: really interesting in the sports. Part of that is I read a really interesting article one time that said basically like the reason kids from like South America are way better at baseball and kids from inner cities are way better at basketball is because they get to play uh, without adult supervision. So they innovate inside the game because they're not being forced to practice and do certain strategies and, you know, just sort of wrote. It's like saying someone asking someone to solve a problem through rote memorization versus asking someone to solve a problem by Problem solving. You know, like it's just a very different experience with inside the game, which I always thought was so interesting. But let me tell you another thing that I heard recently while we're on this, ki- why I personally am on this kid sport thing. I was listening to a podcast um, and they had David Amon on, who's like a expert in brain scanning and brain health and how to, you know, keep your brain in good working order, blah, blah, blah. And he came right out the gate, did not mince words, said, I would not allow my children to play contact sports. I was sort of shocked by the the um, hardcoreness of his statement. <laughs> but he was like, no, no soccer, nothing contact sport. Their brains are too fragile. Their skulls are too hard. They are still developing no contact sports. I was kind wow. of like, wow, dude. I mean, it's not like some sort of... Joe Schmo, he's a neurologist. So it was very, it was very interesting. Further confirmed my not feeling bad about my kid. I mean, Griffin doesn't want to play sports. Amos says he does, but then he never wants to actually go to the, to any of the practices. So, yeah. I mean, listen, I had three kids so they could play with each other. Why well, I got to take them somewhere else? Yeah. And I, I look at Jane.
0: So yesterday she said, Mom, I'm going to go down to the basement. And I said, well, What are you going to do? And she said, Well, my Legos that make a hair salon, I'm going to turn that into a museum.
1: There you go. And I was like,
0: that's awesome. That's so much better than anything I would have planned for you.
1: Yeah. Griffin has been in this Lego. He's building tops out of Legos. Like he, and then he'll, then he wanted to write out instructions so you could see if you could, he really was into like us seeing if we could put the top together based on his instructions. Like, yeah, that's, that's good. That's good brain work right there. I'm not going to, I have no beef with that sort of play.
0: And, and look, there are valuable, uh, we're going to get emails about this. So let me say. no disrespect. Like being on a team is hugely valuable. Yeah. Showing a commitment to that team, the discipline of sports, there are so many wonderful things. My observation, and I think it's related obviously to where I am in my life is that we in America, I think have such an obsession with work Mm -hmm. that we are transmitting all the way down to our kids. And if I want my children to feel differently about work than I do and have a healthier perspective on work than I have, I need to pay more attention to them right now. That's the lesson for me.
1: Well, and I have a general rule in parenting, which is I don't pay money to fight with my kids. And every time I pay money for an activity, I just end up fighting with my kids about taking them. So I'm going to keep my money and not fight. That's my general strategy. So what's on your mind? Have you had time to think about anything besides politics? (laughs) I mean, not really. I'm still on my hunt for the house. It's still frustrating. I just feel like I need some, a little more space to live my best life, but that is okay. I'm trying to remember this though. When we were talking about this, I'm just, again, really need to repeat to myself that this is happening for me, not to me. Um, and it's just a real estate thing, which I know is stressful, but at the same time, you know, everybody's alive and intact. So perspective, um, And I think I listened to this really interesting podcast on Rob Bell with Pete Rollins, which is a really good series. And he was talking about object love and the object desire. And so a lot of times we get confused with what we love, but really like the process, the desire of what we really love is the desire, not the actual object. And there is a part of me that acknowledges like that hunting for a house is very enjoyable to me. And I like looking at houses and thinking through how the space would work. And so, um, to take enjoyment of that right now in my life, because hopefully when I buy this house, I'm not going to do that again for a very long time and give myself a little bit of just a little bit of space. Also, Brent suggested that I do, let's, in fact, let's poll the crowd. Who would like me to start posting the houses I'm looking at on Patreon as a Paducah House Hunters sarah holland version if you would like that
0: that's a super fun idea can (laughs) i vote? i want you to do that
1: okay (laughs) i will try to start doing that i will try to post the houses that we're looking at on patreon so people can follow along with uh paint soup house hunters paint soup politics edition
0: I love it. Well, thank you all for joining us for a kind of random episode of Pantsuit Politics, but that's sometimes what we do best, I think. Yeah, seriously. We really appreciate all of your reviews on the Apple Podcast Player. We would love to get to a 1,000 reviews soon. We are in the high 800s now, so it seems doable. Even if you've left a review before, if you have further thoughts, we would love for you to go back and give us some love there. It really helps us find new Pantsuit Politics listeners. We want to thank Nicholas, Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina. executive producers and all of our patrons without you we could not do this please follow us on social media pantsuit politics on twitter no pantsuit politics on facebook and instagram pantsuit politic with no s on twitter and until friday's episode keep it nuanced y'all